When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Open your swords this morning to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to talk to us briefly about this idea of, are we still amazed? Are we amazed at Jesus' teaching? Jesus summons us to radical devotion. That's a term that can be overused when we think of radical, you know. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had meatloaf and mashed potatoes at one of the local pubs, and it was radically delicious. <laughs> but we can overuse a word so much that it just loses its impact. And Jesus summons to us is radical devotion and radical dependence on God. Think about this in Jesus' sermon here. You know, as Matthew records it from top to bottom, Jesus' sermon might have been 15 to 17 minutes long. I mean, if you just sat and read through Matthew 15 or Matthew 5 through 7, it would take you about 13 to 17 minutes. Or play it on one of your phone apps and listen to it through the phone. It's 15 to 17 minutes. And Jesus sets up this message of repentance, which is really what Matthew 5 through 7 is all about. It's a message of repentance in view of the coming of God's kingdom. In Matthew chapter 4, right after Jesus had finished that 40-day that 40 encounter with Satan out in the wilderness, and he goes through all those physical uh, temptations that Satan gives him, near the end of chapter 4, after Jesus had done some teaching and some healing and some other things and testifying to people and demonstrating them his life and his connection with God, he tells them to repent for the kingdom of God has come near. You know, Matthew uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Most of the other gospels refer to it as the kingdom of God. And that can be a little bit confusing for us, but I want you to just think of kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God as being synonymous. And Matthew constantly refers to and regularly re refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. Now, why does Matthew do this? Matthew is primarily addressed to a Jewish audience. And if you remember the Jewish, uh, the Jewish orientation, it wasn't even proper. Uh, they didn't want to take God's name in vain, so they tried to avoid using God's name as much as possible. And so kingdom of heaven was a very common expression in Matthew's gospel referencing God's kingdom. So just think of kingdom of heaven in Matthew as being that, as you see in other Gospels, when it refers to the kingdom of God. But regardless, the message from Jesus always has been, the kingdom of God is near. Right. Repent. Matthew now collects for us in these couple of chapters, Jesus' teaching that explains to us how a repentant person who is ready for God's rule... And I don't mean rules, I mean God's reign. A person who is ready for the reign of God, this is what their life looks like. This is how their life is oriented. And to be faithful to the text, we must let Jesus' radical demands confront us. 
with all the unnerving force with which they would have struck their first century hearers. At the same time, the rest of the gospel in Matthew's narrative tells us a lot about God's grace. You know, Jesus, in the rest of Matthew's narrative, we have all these kinds of engagements and encounters, and Jesus embraces those who humble themselves, acknowledging God's right to rule in their life, even if their practice is not yet perfect. Even if their practice is not yet perfect. You know, I want us to understand, I, I love the songs that we sang this morning. My message isn't necessarily about God's grace, but it is not absent God's grace. But we need to understand what grace in the scripture really means. Yeah. Religiously, we've bought into this grace being this unmerited favor concept. And that is a component of God's grace. But what grace really is, is God's ability to change me. That's why Paul said, without the grace of God, I am who, you know, because of the grace of God, I am who I am. His grace was not without effect. I was a God hater. I was a God persecutor, the real God. And then I changed. I was intolerant of Gentiles. I was intolerant of lesser educated people. I was intolerant of anyone who broke one jot or tittle of the law. And then I changed. And that would later help Paul to be inspired to write the words, man, without love, I am nothing. I can move mountains. I can perform awesome miracles. I can call, call down wrath from above, but without love, I'm just a banging gong and a clanging cymbal. That's what grace is, guys and gals. It's God's ability to change us. Yes, we don't deserve it, but that is not the zenith of grace. If I truly embrace biblical grace, embrace biblical grace, I'm going to change. I'm going to always change. I'm going to always change. And so that's what the balance of Matthew is telling us after some hard-hitting stuff right out the gate when he launches his ministry. This sermon will always be amazing. And when we're not stopped in our tracks, when we read this sermon or come across it through our daily devotionals or whatever the case may be, if we're not stopped in our tracks by it, we should be concerned Deeply, deeply concerned. I go back to the illustration of the lullaby, lullaby effect a couple of weeks ago. You know, for those of us who have been around in the kingdom for a while, there's so many things that we can just become almost buffered to the Spirit working in our life and God's Word cutting our heart. You know, we've got to fight that the temptation to go there. And there's lots of things that we can do to kind of make that happen. There's no one secret path for every single person out there. And there's a lot of components that, that go into that. But as we go through this particular sermon, I want us to embrace this idea that we need to always be amazed by Jesus' speech. Jesus starts by telling us how his disciples can find happiness. And in Matthew chapter 5, a very familiar section, we call them the Beatitudes or the B-attitude, right? This is what happiness 
looks like in God's kingdom. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 through 12, the, the, God tells us that blessed or happy, contented, if you will, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, I think this is a a very powerful way that Jesus launches into this first speech. And it's really, it's an upside, it's an inversion of what we typically think of and what the world certainly thinks of when we think of happiness. You know, uh, doing a little bit of research on this, you know, typically what might come across when people are pursuing happiness, you know, Jesus' first statement is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, the world would say, blessed, happy are we when we achieve our goals of wealth and success. I'm going to be super happy. I'm going to be happy when I'm always having fun and I'm fun to be around. I'm the life and the soul of every party. That's going to make me happy. I'm going to be happy by being strong or beautiful or rich or clever, being independent, secure, and in control. I'm going to be happy getting our terms agreed to and my rights established and ensuring that justice is born. I'm going to be happy taking revenge on my enemies. I'm going to be happy indulging in greed and lust. I'm going to be happy in picking fights and winning arguments. Or better still, I'm going to be happy avoiding all trouble or misfortune. But Jesus teaches us here that happiness, the happy life, is exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Jesus says those who are happy are the poor in spirit. Because they depend completely on God, who is in heaven and on earth. Jesus says those who are happy are those who are mourn. Because they know how to share. God knows how to share their heartbreak and he knows how to comfort them. That's real life. That's real world. Jesus says the meek are happy. Because they're free of pride and selfish ambition. And in the end, God will give them the world. Jesus says, those who are happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they're happy because God himself will satisfy their longings. Jesus says, the happy are those who have mercy. Because they will in turn be treated with mercy. Jesus says, the pure in heart are happy. Because they will see God and meet God face to face. Those who make peace. Make peace. God always tells us to make peace. He doesn't say keep peace. We had a word for that back in the Cold War era. It was called detente. A tempered, what did I say? Did I say Cold War? Yeah. The Cold War. Some of you don't remember that. Detente. 
it was this it was the it was this thing between Russia and the United States, you know? Rather than nuking each other, we were just kind of agree to this tension-filled peace. I won't lob my nukes on you and you don't lob your nukes on me. It's still kind of there. So peacemaking. Blessed are those, happy are those who are persecuted because they share the real cost of God's kingdom. Jesus describes a happiness which doesn't depend on my possessions or my circumstances or my good luck. It's a happiness that God gives now which nothing can take away. It's a happiness which looks forward to wonderful rewards when God's kingdom fully comes. Understand this. God's kingdom is here. The church is part of God's kingdom. But there is an element of the kingdom still to come. The fulfillment of all things when the new heavens and the new earth come forward. And I don't know when that's going to be. You don't know when it's going to be, but it could happen any second. Jesus adds a blessing for those who suffer for their faith. He promises that God will make it up to them with reward which is far greater than anything we can imagine right now. And persecution is kind of like a compliment, Jesus says here, because it means we're being treated like the prophets. I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Franklin Roosevelt or somebody else in the past, but they said, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. To avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. We must be willing, guys, to face persecution and have evil set against us. Jesus' warning in Matthew 5, 11 and 12 here, it's not regarding a Roman response. It's not the Romans that Jesus is saying you're going to be persecuted. Because quite frankly, the Romans didn't care about the Jews. And the only reason Pilate participated in the crucifixion of Jesus was because he didn't want the pressure going back to Rome that he was losing control of his region. He didn't care about Jesus' teaching. I mean, I think near the end, especially when his wife came to him and said, look, I had a vision about Jesus. This man is innocent. Don't do anything. She was upset. And Pilate was on like, well, hey, wife, my career is at stake here. If it, get back, if, it gets back to Pilate, if it gets back to Caesar that I've lost control of this Jewish outback post called Jerusalem and Judea, I'm done. I'm going to get deported to Siberia. And Siberia didn't exist yet. But he wasn't moved by Jesus' teaching. But the people who were offended were the very ones who should have been following the Jews. You see, Jesus' words are always highly offensive to those who think they're following. They're highly offensive to me when I think I'm following. That's why Jesus would later on in this speech say, not everyone who says to me, right, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
So we're not going to go through the entirety of this speech, but I want to just break down the key elements of each section. You know, the next section in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus talks about salt and light. Jesus says disciples are like salt and light. They are very distinctive. You are very distinctive. Salt brings flavor. It's a preservative. Light shines in the darkness. It stands out from the darkness. It doesn't blend into the darkness and become gray. It stands out in the darkness. Not with some kind of, hol I'm holier than you, but with a light that calls people to us and says, come on, do life like this. This is how you were designed. This is how you were built to bring glory to God. He calls us to be light and darkness. Then he goes on and he talks about, he came to fulfill the law, you know, not to tear down the law, and he's come to fulfill it by completely living out the law. The law stands right down to its smallest letter until Jesus fulfills the law that he's talking about here. But Jesus is against nitpicking legalism. The Pharisees had developed the law into a mass of little rules. And Jesus says his disciples must do better than the Pharisees. You can't just go around picking out all the various rules that you've created and tearing people down. Yeah. And I'll tell you the biggest violation that the Pharisees had in their discharge of God's rule, which was no longer God's rule but their rule, they had no relationship. They had no regard for those who suffered. There's even one point in Jesus' teaching is some of you even bring your sacrifices and it's not to honor your mother and father, but you're only doing it out of an obligation so that God will reward you. How perverted is that? How perverted is that? Jesus goes on to explain the heart of the commandments. You know, he talks about you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. But then he raises the entirety of God's law to the level that it needs to be for us. He says, I don't even want you to hate somebody. Because if you hate somebody, you've already killed them. If you look at a person lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Man, this needs to stir us. This needs to really move our hearts. This needs to move our souls. Everything about our culture, everything about our society today just seems to be built around, and it, I don't know, it just seems to be getting worse and worse in time around the idea of hatred, yeah. anger, yeah. perversion, yeah. sexuality gone out of control. Yeah. Jesus goes on and he talks about divorce. Divorce in Jewish society became quick and easy for the husband. And it was an extremely, extremely unfair experience for the wife. A man can discard his wife for the slightest of reasons simply by giving her a certificate of divorce. But Jesus teaches that there's only one reason for divorce. When the marriage is canceled by committing adultery. Then he talks about oaths. Some Jews have found a way of breaking their promises. You know, if it's not built on uh, an oath with God, then I don't have to keep my oath with you. And Jesus says, no. People who are my disciples, their yes means yes. Their no means no. And what I've agreed to, I've agreed to with God first and with you right there with me. Jesus says the way to the kingdom living in the, near the end of Matthew chapter 5 is to forgive. 
to forgive, right? 38 through 42. If somebody slaps you on one side of the face, offer them the other. Boy, I like to really rationalize that one away. <laughs> Try that again, right? If someone sues you for your coat, overcome their greed with your generosity. Mm. If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for a mile, surprise him by giving him an extra mile for free. You know, the point here is to give and lend as a matter of course because that is how God treats you. Then he talks about loving your enemies. He talks about, at the end of chapter 5, love people who love you in return is something that anybody can do. Greeting people of our own kind is no different from anything the pagans were doing. The challenge to loving our enemies, as Jesus says, cross the line. Cross the line, which often is this metaphorical framework we put in our own mind about how we view and what we expect from others. Jesus says, no, I tell you to love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, and in this way, you show what discipleship is all about. Accept other people in a way which shows the perfect love of God. Bless you, my brother Alex. <laughs> oh, I so needed that. You got one too. Good move. <laughs> Accept other people in a way which shows the perfect love of God. I believe this to be the greatest gift that we have to offer the world. Now, I'm talking biblical love here. Love with truth. Because love without truth is shallow, right? And truth without love is just mean. But the greatest gift that you have to offer the world right now is the love of God. That is the greatest gift. That's what Paul was talking about, right, in the Corinthian letter? Even though I can do all these amazing things, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. A clanging gong or a banging cymbal. Tim, that was fantastic on those, whatever those small round things are today. And you're not feeling good, so I hope you feel better. Your playing made me feel better. And the singing. Wanting the best for others, even our enemies. We didn't know about any kind of love like this until Jesus came. Then he goes on and he talks about in chapter 6, giving, praying, and fasting. So you gotta, we need to do these things, right? We need to give, we need to pray, and we need to fast. But unlike the Pharisees, they're not intended to be public displays of our spirituality. Who you are in private is who you are in your real relationship with God. What happens tonight before you lay your head to sleep and you pray your soul the Lord to keep? And what happens in the morning when you wake up and you rise? The thoughts that are going through your mind? That's really who we are, right? Yeah. Usually about Friday afternoon, 
I start battling nausea. And it's because of the weight that I feel when I preach the Word of God. And I feel like I can be very objective when I say, I've come to grips with this is not about me because I struggled with that, God. Is this about me or what? And it's really the burden I feel on a regular basis for preaching and teaching. Can I walk the talk? But more importantly, can I get out of the way of the Word of God and just let the Spirit work in our lives? To convey God's message and do it seriously, do it in a way in which we can embrace it, but do it in a way in which we can change. It's, it's, sometimes it's exhausting. I don't know. I just, I get up a lot during the week. I'm sorry to get so emotional, but I just think about the way our world is hurting. And I think about the way our church can be hurting. And then I realize God has called us to mission. And I pray for the ability, the love, the humility, the passion to be that ambassador. And this isn't just my calling. This is your calling. That's why Peter was inspired by God to say, you're a kingdom of priests. You were people who did not have mercy and light, and now you do. And now God has granted you, he has blessed you, he has gifted you the opportunity to declare his praises. Jesus goes on here to say, lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. Jesus urges disciples to live for God. You know, the world's treasures don't last. Our fashionable clothes will be eaten by moths. Our expensive possessions break down and get stolen. I'm seeing rust pop up on my Honda Accord. You know, it's 15 years old now. Of course it's going to rust. That is the biblical cord. What's that page? It still runs. It still runs. And it's paid for. It's paid for. Amen. Amen. But it is the biblical car, you know, because the Bible says in Acts that the disciples were all together in one accord. <laughs> so I don't know what the rest of you are driving, but you've got to take that into account. I did. But this stuff is going to wear out. And Jesus says you've got to choose between God and money. Money is attractive to us. It makes us feel good because it gives power and choice. But the desire for money can overtake us. We can end up worshiping it as our God. As our God, Jesus tells us straight, we can only worship God or money. 
There isn't room for both of these in our lives. Jesus says here, also in chapter 6, don't worry. If we don't set our hearts on money, then what's to become of us? How will we get enough food to eat and clothes to wear and all the other things that we need? Jesus says this is where we must learn to trust God. Now, we have gone far beyond enough food to eat, enough things to drink, and enough clothes to wear. That's not our struggle, right? We've got to be objective about this. We don't struggle with those things. Maybe there's a few of you in here that do, and if you do, let us know. We need to help you. We struggle with, you name it. I mean, I, I sometimes, again, Jesus tells us, don't worry. You know, we, I, we just get, we, we get, we get caught up into comparing ourselves, you know, with other people, with other things. We, we understand this, we know this. What really counts in God's kingdom, guys, is his reign in our lives and in our world. If we put God first, if, if we just put God first in everything, that doesn't mean we sit on the sideline and expect everything to be handed to us on a conveyor belt. No, we put God first, all these things getting taken care of in our life. I'm so grateful that I've matured out of that worrisome early 20s guy with a wife and a couple of kids. And like, man, I grew up in a home of scarcity. My parents fought about money all the time. We moved 12 times in the 18 years I lived at home, running away from the landlord. It was tough. And so I was built to worry. I was built to be thinking, how am I going to feed my family? How am I going to clothe myself? How am I going to buy diapers? How am I going to put a roof over our head in the married housing apartment complex we lived in in campus? It was worrying. I lacked a lot of faith at that young age. But amen, God gives us grace to grow in our faith. <laughs> Judging others. Jesus goes on to say here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns against his disciples passing judgment on people. People will measure us by the same standard that we apply to others. That's what he's teaching here. You know, this, this passage can be read like God is judging us, but it's really how other people, the way we treat people is how people are going to treat us in return. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And he says, stop, stop judging one another. Stop assuming you know why. Stop assuming you understand their motives. Stop. Then he goes on in chapter 7 and he says, look, to be disciples of mine, you really need to develop your relationship with God. Ask, seek, and knock. We do a great job of presenting that to people we're studying the Bible with, right? We call it our seeking God study. But this is written to us. We need to continue to ask, seek, and knock in order to grow and build in that relationship with God. Sometimes we wonder, why is my relationship dull with God? Why is my relationship flat? Why am I not feeling God's presence? Why do I feel distant from the kingdom, from uh, you know, my love for God? When my man to love grows weak, my distance in the fellowship. Maybe we've just stopped asking, seeking, and knocking. We want some kind of other Star Trek kind of intervention. Beam me up, Scotty. Jesus sums up his teaching on how to treat people in verse 12 of chapter 7. And he says, we must behave towards others as we would like them to behave towards us. 
Give generously and receive joyfully. Forgive and be forgiven. This is God's love in action. And then finally in chapter 7, Jesus says, it's decision time. That's what chapter 7 is all about. You know, this is what kingdom living looks like. This is what kingdom relationships look like. This is a flipping, a reverse, if you will, of the world order into God's reign. Because God is reigning. God is ruling. God's kingdom is here today with us. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you these four warnings. And he does it in a series of, of comparisons. There's two contrasts in each way. The first is found in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate or the broad path. We've got the narrow road to choose, and there's only a few that go that way. And then there's the broad path. We know that story, right? We know that comparison. But we ought to be moved by that, that call, that challenge from Jesus regularly in our lives to constantly make the right decision. The next decision he talks about is the two trees. A tree that produces good fruit and a tree that doesn't produce good fruit. And you will judge the fruit by the outcome of their lives, right? Be a tree that bears good fruit. Then he talks about the two claims. Those who say, Lord, Lord. And then those who actually do the will of God. And then the two builders. One builds quickly, painlessly, effortlessly, and without an investment. The other has to go through a lot of work to build that structure on rock. One falls, the other stands. And what Jesus tells us here in this decision time is choose wisely. Jesus is asking us today to choose wisely. To look at this sermon, to look at his speech and say, look, choose widely. So as I wrap up with us this morning and before we commune together, there are three verses in particular in this sermon that I really want you to circle. I really want you to marinate, meditate, uh, deliberate on as you go through this week. That's the other thing I you know, sometimes think about when I, when I pray about speaking. Does anybody remember what I say? Does anybody remember, more importantly, what God says? And do people do anything with this? Do I do anything with this? The first one is verse 5. I mean, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Righteousness Righteousness in Scripture is never about, am I doing God's rules? Righteousness in Scripture is all about right relationships with God. What do we call that? Horizontally, Mark? Vertically? And then right relationships with my fellow man. Horizontally. And God tells us through the, the, the book of 1 John, you can't say that you got this if you ain't got this. Right. It's incongruent. You can't claim to love God whom you've not seen and not love your 
fellow man, your brother whom you do see. It's all about right relationships. We are hungering and thirsting for right relationships. This means that we are desperate for right relationships with one another. Now, I've never really known hunger and thirst on a big picture level. I've had small bursts of being hungry or thirsty after maybe, you know, being at school all day or having to skip a meal or, or whatever. But these people knew real hunger and thirst. Survival every day was challenging. That's not our struggle. So we have to work hard at creating the intensity, the connection that this makes. We baptized a brother from Sudan last summer. Lazarus knew knows what this is all about. He spent most of his life, he's now like 47 years old, maybe getting by with one meal every 24 to 36 hours. And it generally just consisted of rice. He got polio when he was seven, crawled on his hands when he was 17 from South Sudan to Ethiopia or be gunned down by Muslims. And during that process, he may have eaten every other day through the generosity of some stranger. And then he spent over five years in a refugee camp, struggling every day to get a handful of rice. You can imagine what that life is like, the desperation to just have a legitimate meal, to find a drink of fresh, cool water. Put yourself, put your imagination, put your mind in that situation, and that's the desperation that Jesus says, righteousness. We've got to desperately want this. We've got to want to be right with one another. We've got to want to be right with God. The second verse is 633. Jesus tells us to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. That's kind of a no-brainer. I get it. But don't let it go in one ear and out the other. It can become easy, guys, to measure ourselves not by the words of this speech, but by the standard of the world in which we live. As long as I maintain a morality gap of, I don't know, 10 points or however you want to measure it, I'm doing okay. No, that's, that's not the call. The call is to seek God's kingdom first. That kingdom that is described here for, for us in Jesus' most excellent speech in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Or Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And then thirdly, the third most important part, I believe, in this text is 724, where it says Jesus wraps up his speech with the pronouncement that everyone who hears his words and puts them into practice, in other words, they live it, that's the wise builder. That's the one who ultimately stands. Not the one who does everything but practices them, declares Lord, Lord, but doesn't practice them. Jesus said it's the one who puts them into practice. So how can we understand this sermon today and still be in amazement, still be moved, still be open to seeing like, wow, I'm, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm not there yet. You know, the call here isn't that we're going to be perfect in all this, but Jesus does call us to, to strive towards that perfection for God is perfect. Matthew chapter five, I think verse 48 or somewhere in there. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. i got to want to be perfect. 
but I want my heart. It's got to be led by my heart. It's got to be led by my interior motivations, my intent, if you will. How do we do this? How do we make this happen? Well, I think buried within the whole sermon is this idea of asking, seeking, knocking. You know, if I could give you five things to do, this would be it. Four things. Okay, three and a half. <laughs> Pray. Don't discount the power of prayer. We need to be praying for this activation in our life every day. This needs to be an active claim as we're asking, seeking, and knocking to become more and more like him. We need to pray. Pray for the changes you need to make in your life. Pray for the power of God's spirit to direct you, to lead you, to be in touch with you, for you to walk away from everything that's trapping you down to the, to the life of sin and the ways of the world. Fasting. Giving up some things so that you can really just let God discipline you. Discipline what's going on in your life. And it doesn't always have to be fasting from food. There's a, you know, I won't go there with it, but I just, yesterday I felt like a little debaucherous. I mean, there was somebody who made the comment that there was a lot of college football on yesterday. And I'm so glad I don't have cable TV at my house because I was just like with the remote in this. It's got all the cable channels. And I wasn't alone. Ken was with me. <laughs> Praise be to God, though. Praise be to God. We had a great breakfast with the brother in the morning, and then in the afternoon I got together with another brother, and I at least broke myself away from that overindulgence. Uh, but, you know, give up some stuff to really dig deep. Meditation would be the third thing. You know, I've been pumping that a little bit since I've been here, but we do not meditate enough. We do not think enough. We do not evaluate our lives enough. We just go, 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 go. And then we get bored and we can't figure out how we don't have connection. And then I think, when I talk about meditation, I'm talking about meditation of God's word. Lastly, it would be obedience. We're going to take communion. And as you take the elements this morning, say, say prayer yourself. Just take that bread for what it means. Take that cup for what it means. And just pray. Pray to connect with this message that Jesus is giving us even still today. So if the ushers will get ready. Because when Jesus had finished saying these things, the disciples in Wichita were amazed at his teaching. Mm 